We are in the middle of a sermon series here at Grace called Grace DNA, all right? And the hope and the goal of this seven-week series is to begin to answer some kind of basic questions about our church. Who are we? What are we doing here? Why are we here? Why are you here? Okay? A lot of places you could be this morning. Why are you here with us? And then to ask the follow-up questions, we begin to answer these to extend an invitation and ask if you want to be a part of what's going on at Grace Church. So the big picture looks like this. We believe here at Grace that a God of love has revealed himself to us in a book, okay? It's the Bible. And this book is a reservoir of hope and grace and love and joy that has direct application to our everyday life. And the reason it does is because it's all about, from beginning to end, page 1 to 1,340 in my Bible, um, every page is about Jesus and the gifts of the gospel that he has brought to this world and extended to you. And so as we get together, we're going to commit ourselves to reading and understanding and praying through this book. And as we do, we expect God to meet us and to change us. And so the way we're describing a changed life according to the Bible, is that this God of love gathers his church family together, and then he calls us to love him, love God, to love one another, and to love our neighbors, in this case, the Roaring Fork Valley. Okay, so that's the big picture. That's the why of this church. So these three branches of the Christian life, they're really going to guide and direct all we do here at Grace Church. They're what we're unpacking in this sermon series. So we've taken two weeks to look at how we're called to love God, and now I want to turn and ask how we can love one another as a church family. But the question that I want us to start with this morning, before we jump into that, or kind of as a side door into answering that, is where are we poor? Okay? Where are we poor? Now, this is kind of an interesting question because um, uh, we live in a very wealthy place, right? I mean, not only like America, globally speaking, every single person in this room is rich globally and historically, but our particular valley is a pretty wealthy place. I mean, whether you feel wealthy here or not, um, this place has a culture of money that surrounds it. But it's not just money. This place is wealthy in all kinds of things. This place in in our culture, it's wealthy in natural beauty. I mean, we have the gift and the privilege of looking at that when we wake up every morning. That is, that, those are riches that God has poured out on us to enjoy. On average, we have a wealth of health here in this valley. Picking County is in the top two or three healthiest uh, counties in the entire country, right? An average life expectancy a full 20 years above some other counties in America, We have a wealth of experiences and adventure and exploration to be had. We have a wealth of knowledge in books. I mean, in a day and a half, Amazon can send me any book on the planet, right? I mean, what can you imagine other people through history, like, that that would have blown their minds. The access that we have to a wealth of knowledge is unheard of. So here's the question. Amid all of this wealth, Amid all of the riches, what, where are we poor? What, what kind of poverty tends to accompany rich communities and rich cultures? Have you ever asked that question before? Are there patterns of neediness and poverty and lack because we're wealthy in so many other areas 
money, achievement, experiences? Are they linked in some way? I think they are, and I'm not the only one. Last year, NPR reported on a major study that was done in the United States, and the conclusions looked like this. More than half of, surveyed response, of, of survey respondents, 54%, said they always or sometimes felt that no one knows them well. That 56% reported something, sometimes or always feeling like the people around them were not necessarily with them. That they were surrounded by people, but still alone. Two in five felt like they lacked companionship. That their relationships weren't meaningful, and that they were isolated from other people. And in fact, two professors of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School wrote a book, The Lonely American, And in it, they said, we were deeply troubled. Americans had fewer confidants than in the past, and almost 25% reported they had not talked about matters of importance with anyone in the last six months. See, one of the poverties, I think, that accompanies wealthy cultures, wealthy countries, wealthy places like ours is, um, is that we're busy and we're distracted And there's actually a a loneliness epidemic that you could describe in our country, and I think even in our valley. It's easy to be poor in relationships when you're rich in many other ways. And to be honest, I've not been here very long, a year. But this is one of the themes that I've already heard over and over again, talking to you all, talking to other people in this valley. There's a lack of deep, intimate, life-giving, mutually encouraging relationships. Many people have acquaintances and colleagues and ski buddies and trail buddies. Not a lot of people have what I want to call this morning spiritual friendship. It's a very, very rare thing. But here's the thing. We were not designed to live without spiritual friends. Okay, C.S. Lewis, one of my go-to guys, wrote a great little book called The Four Loves. In it, he writes this, to the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and the most fully human of all the loves. The crown of life and the school of virtue, he wrote. In the modern world, in comparison, ignores it. Why is that? Why do we ignore what the ancients called the greatest of all the loves? Well, Lewis proposes it's because we haven't experienced friendship as we should, as we could. I mean, could this be true? Might our lives be filled with what we could call um, mutual, mutual admiration societies, right? Relationships of mutual admiration, where we hang out with the kind of people that make us feel good, that we like, that we respect, and who respect us back. People who understand us, and we understand easily. Mutually benefiting relationships. I have lots of these relationships. These kind of relationships, they're not bad, right? Like, I hope Your life is filled with these kinds of relationships. People to laugh with, socialize with, go on adventures with, hang out with, shared interests. But it's worth asking with C.S. Lewis, is that all friendship was designed to be? A mutual admiration society. The vision that the Bible lays out for friendship is sort of uncharted territory. There is no other book in the history of the world that holds friendship so highly and so valued as the Bible. And no other friendship in the Bible, I think, is as famous and more illuminating as the friendship between David and Jonathan in the Old Testament. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to look at this friendship between these two men and ask, what's it like? Why is it so good? 
And how can we begin to extend the kind of life-giving, gospel-nurturing, spiritual friendship in our lives as well? So a little background before I read our passage, um, and it's a short passage this morning. Jonathan... As you remember, he's the eldest son of Saul. Okay, Saul at the time is the first king of Israel. And so that makes Jonathan in this culture the the heir to the throne. Okay, the oldest son of the king, he would have had the throne. David, on the other hand, is the eighth youngest son of Jesse. He's a shepherd with no prospect of any inheritance, wealth, or importance. But here's the rub. Here's the twist. When Samuel the prophet gets a word from God to go anoint the next king, he doesn't go and anoint Jonathan. He goes and he anoints David. And David continues his life in obscurity as a shepherd until the kind of big moment, the unveiling, okay? The Philistines, Israel's enemy, neighbor, they're fighting against him. And in this particular war, in this particular moment, they had a secret weapon who happened to be an eight and a half foot tall giant named Goliath. And every day he would go out and insult the troops and ask for a one-on-one combat to decide the whole war. Everybody's afraid until David wanders in with a lunchbox and said, why is that guy making fun of us? I'll go fight him, okay? So little David, everybody thought they were sending him on a suicide mission, but then he beat the giant, okay? He became the hero that represented God for his people, and he was catapulted onto the national stage And he meets Jonathan, the king's son, the next day. And the place we're airdropping into our story is the very next passage after David's great victory against Goliath. So I'm going to read 1 Samuel chapter 18, just verses 1 through 4 this morning. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul uh, took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So this passage is short and it kind of seems random. Right? It just seems like there's a few facts about a friendship. But what I want to suggest is that this is actually a, a soaring picture of spiritual friendship that can guide our own friendships today. And, and the reason is because in it we see a vision for friendship, we see the cost of, of friendship, and then ultimately we see the power for spiritual friendship. So before we um, jump into this, let me just pray again for our time in God's Word. Heavenly Father, We do ask now that as we open your word, your truth, your words of life, you would reveal to us what you'd have us see this morning, that you would open our hearts to receive your grace, you'd open our minds to to understand the calling that you lay before us, and, and that you really would begin even now to cultivate the kinds of friendships that um, help a life following you to thrive. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So what's a vision for spiritual friendship look like? Um, Verse 1. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. Um, David, after this moment with Goliath, um, turns into a dearly loved leader. He was followed by 600 mighty men who would give their lives for him. He was a man's man. I mean, he was like a warrior. He was like elite on the battlefield. 
He was also a ladies' man, okay? The ladies kind of liked to follow him around, see what was up. Uh, he was a musician. He was a poet. He was a renaissance man. I mean, every guy is jealous of David, all right? People sang songs of his greatness. But there was only one person who the Bible says shared a spirit of unity that reached to his very soul. It wasn't the 600 mighty men. It wasn't the other poets, the musicians, and and the people following him. It was his friend, Jonathan. This is an aspect, I think, of friendship that we understand, that we know. Even today, when friendship love has largely been ignored, um, our friends are those that we can be open with and honest with. Uh, There are confidants. We share a spirit and, and a shared unity with them. Something deeper than just shared interests. Something deeper than just ski buddies or something else. Great friends are connected by something deep. And in a lot of ways, there's no good reason that these two men should share such a deep connection. I mean, one's a poor shepherd from the sticks. The other is the heir to the throne. What did they have in common? What was their common ground? But in a very short time, they cultivated deep spiritual friendship that knit their souls together. How did they do it? We read in verse 3, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Now, a covenant in the Old Testament is this kind of formal legal bond. It expresses permanent loyalty. It's not based on current circumstances. It's not based on how we feel day to day. It's a commitment regardless of circumstances. And this is how the Bible describes friendship. Proverbs 18 says a friend sticks closer than a brother. And it says a friend loves at all times. Not the easy, advantageous times, not just the fun times, but all times. Who gets the privilege of seeing you at your worst in life? I mean, kind of think back through your life. Who has been there in the most embarrassing moments, the most regretful moments that you have? and was still happy to be there. Those are your friends, right? Those are the ones that you're connected to because you know, and they know you know, that no one's going anywhere, right? That whether you've said it or not, you're committed to each other. There's a bond of, um, of commitment there. They're the ones that you can hurt, and you know they're still going to be there the next day. This is a relationship where there is freedom within the safety of knowing you don't have to be perfect You don't have to pretend. You get to be a work in progress with these people. You don't have to be the finished product. Spiritual friendship is a place where we can be vulnerable, where we can be honest, because the commitment we have to one another. But here's the thing. That commitment, it's not just created out of thin air. You can't just decide, like look across the room and pick someone out and say, I'm now committed to you as my spiritual friend. How does something like that happen? How did these two men become so committed to each other? Well, again, C.S. Lewis from his book, The Four Loves, writes this. We can have, he says, erotic love and friendship for the same person. Hopefully that's marriage, right? Yet in some ways, nothing is less like a friendship than a love affair. Lovers are always talking to one another about their love. Friends hardly ever talk about their friendship. Lovers are normally face-to-face, absorbed in each other. Friends, side-by-side, absorbed in some common interest. This common interest of friendship is what forges 
um, the relationship, right? And it could be anything. I mean, it could be your drinking buddies. It could be church friends. It could be political affiliation, whatever. But the greater the thing your friendship is about, the greater the strength and the bond that that friendship will have. So what vision united David and Jonathan? Well, look again with me at verse 4. Jonathan, it says, stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now, first read through, this verse seems super random, right? Out of nowhere, here you can borrow my coat, buddy. Here's my sword. Here's my bow. I mean, why is this such a great bond of friendship? Is he just loaning his buddy some gear? You know, I do that all the time. I steal people's gear. I loan them my gear. I don't get that gear back. Um, Is that the basis of deep and lasting spiritual friendships? Not necessarily. Here, Jonathan isn't just giving David his gear. This is not just any robe, not just any armor, not just any bow and sword. He's giving him the king's robe and the king's armor and the king's sword and bow and belt. What Jonathan is doing is willingly handing David the role that was Jonathan's by right. They are so committed to each other and to God's vision for Israel that Jonathan considers it a joy to freely hand over to David the most valuable thing in his life, which was his right to the throne. See, the thing that knit their souls together, the very thing that their their friendship was built on, was a vision for God's kingdom and a vision for God's plan in the other person's life. These men in any normal story should have been bitter rivals, right? I mean, you guys, any story you hear of the ancient world where there's kings, if one person has the right to the throne and another person is gunning for the throne, that story only ends one way, right? It ends in bloodbath. Here, these guys are laying down their rights for the other person because of the greater vision that holds them together. They were more concerned with how God was at work in the world, in their, in their nation, in the other's lives, than their own claims and rights and riches and power. There is no greater glue in the world for your friendships than that. The shared vision of how God is at work in another person's life. There is no greater purpose than to prepare a friend to stand before the presence of God at the end of their life. That's what spiritual friendship is made of. If you don't move into your friendships with that vision, you're kind of selling them short. Another way to say this is that friends, um, they name one another's glory. Okay, what do I mean by that? They say what is true about each other, even though it isn't all true yet. Okay, so Jonathan, he hands over the, the king's robe to David, and he says, I know you're not king yet, but you will be, because that's God's plan for your life. That's the promise that he has given to you and to our country. What do you need to say to a friend to help them believe what God is calling them to be in their life? What, what does a friend of yours maybe not see or not believe well enough about their certain future in Jesus that you can help them see by encouraging them and naming their glory for them today? I mean, that their struggle with a certain sin is already won through Jesus, even though it doesn't feel like it right now, but sticking with him to the end 
they will experience the victory of grace and the joy of salvation. Who might you need to say that to? That their disappointments in life, their frustration in current situations will ultimately be turned into a joy and a gift because God really does promise that all things work for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Who needs to hear that gospel promise in your life today? The essence of spiritual friendship is being committed to the work of God in another person's life. Speaking those truths to one another in your friendships. Not just the person you see today, but the person you know God is making them into. And here's the thing. In that way, because you, because you all know someone in this room even better than I know them in this room, and, and as you get to know their story and as you get to know the gospel story, you all are actually going to pastor each other better than I can pastor you. Because you get to be a spiritual friend that speaks the gospel into someone's life who you know even better than I can know them. And that's how we're going to love one another as a church. We're going to pastor each other towards Jesus. Spiritual friendship is about investing in someone to make them great in the only way that's going to matter in the end, to help them grow in the image of Jesus. That's the vision. That's what the Bible asks us to invest in in one another. But here's the thing with investing, isn't it? Whether it's in a company, whether it's in a fund, Anytime I'm speaking about the financial world, I'm a little outside of my, my space, but I know this much, that if you're going to invest in something, it's going to cost you something up front, isn't it? And friendship, as we see with Jonathan and David, it is costly. Jonathan gives up the throne for his friend. Ultimately, he'll even go into a battle at knowing he's going to die to basically remove David's final rival from his uh, path to the throne. He lays down his life for his friend. Years later, David um, does the same thing for Jonathan. He takes Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, there's a name, 2 Samuel 9, it's an amazing story, into his own house. David keeps his covenant with Jonathan at great cost to himself. Investing in spiritual friendship is going to cost us something. What's it going to cost us in this valley, practically? I mean, if you're going to pursue these sorts of friendships intentionally, what's it going to cost us? Here's a couple of practical things. It's going to cost us our time. Okay, there are calendar costs involved with pursuing these sorts of relationships. It's going to require that we waste some time in a place where wasting time is very, very countercultural and hard to do. Uh, to grow as a Christian, we're going to have to waste time being together, listening with them, hearing their story without much of an agenda. There's not going to be a tangible um, takeaway right away. The conversation might be one-sided. It won't help our bottom line. It'll probably cost you some ski time. Unless you can figure out how to do this while skiing, and then win-win, right? There will also be um, a comfort cost. What do I mean here? As you enter into these sorts of biblical friendships, you open yourself up to correction and to growth. That's part of the deal. You give your friends permission to lovingly speak truth into your life. I call this granting a hunting license, okay? You can't let just anybody run around in your life taking shots at you, but you can pick a certain few people and after they have built enough trust in your life, you hand them a hunting license and you say, you have the right and I expect you to come to me and let me know if I am living in a way that's not honoring to God. 
Galatians 6.1, if anyone is caught in transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. Proverbs 27, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? As iron sharpens iron, a friend sharpens a friend. Later in their relationship, David has to convince Jonathan that Saul, his dad, is actually trying to kill him. And he does this by going to a dinner party and letting Saul throw a spear at him. But that's an awkward conversation to have. Hey, buddy, I know you love your dad, but he's a murderer, okay? Like, that's a hard thing to say to a friend, but that's the kind of places that we need to be able to go with our spiritual friends to help them grow, When we try to live this life following Jesus alone, even if we do it with our Bibles open, we are going to skip the hard stuff about us. But asking a spiritual friend to come alongside and join us in our journey, we will actually grow more like Christ over time. Friendship makes you great, not only by naming your glory, but also by loving someone enough to go into those places with them they'd rather not go. Not everyone gets to do this in your life, probably very few, but if you don't have anyone that gets to do this, you're missing out. You're not being loved enough if you don't give someone that opportunity. Um, Because here's the thing, spiritual friendships don't just happen by accident. Um, Acquaintances happen by accident. Ski buddies happen by accident. Um, Loneliness and isolation in our world, that happens by accident. These sorts of relationships, they only happen when they're pursued and nourished, and clung to. And so a few months into living here in this valley, I recognize this about myself, right? Like, if I don't do this on purpose, this is just not going to happen. I'm going to be lonely for a long time. And so I made the conscious decision to ask a couple of guys to be my spiritual friends. And it was one of the funniest questions I've asked in a long time. I mean, basically, I'm an adult man asking two other adult men um, I felt like I was asking them to prom. I literally said, would you be my spiritual friend? Like, would you go out on a friend date with me, right? Um, And they said yes, and I was so happy. (laughs) But knowing what I know about this lonely world, and knowing what I know about my own sinful heart, and knowing what I know about the path of least resistance, that just wasn't going to happen on its own, right? But stepping into sort of that awkward, uncomfortable space hopefully, is going to turn into a great gift down the road. I need spiritual friends to thrive, and so do you. The way God designed our lives to work is for spiritual friendships to feed our friendship with Jesus and for our friendship with Jesus to feed spiritual friendships. In John 15, we read this. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. And then Jesus says, You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servants do not know what their master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. See, like Jonathan did for David, Jesus gave up at great cost to himself what was rightfully his so that he could come and make a covenant commitment of friendship with you, with his people. He gave up his throne. He crossed the gap that we had created so that we could be adopted into God's family. Jesus took our sin and self-centeredness and he crossed the gap so that we could become his friend. You are friends with God. Jesus is our greatest friend. 
And there is no place in the entire history of literature, no place in the entire history of religion that says something that intimate and that high and that valuable about friendship. You can be friends with God through Jesus. That's astounding. And it's only out of the infinite resources available in our friendship with Jesus that we can give the gift of gospel friendship to other people. We can initiate new relationships without fear. Is it going to cost us something? Of course. Is it going to be awkward sometimes? Of course. Are we going to go to hard places together? Of course. But from the eternal security of Jesus' friendship, we can bear the cost of those friendship and then pursue the vision to help one and make one another more like Jesus. So my prayer as we close here is that Grace Church becomes like an incubator for these kinds of friendships, okay? That, that these are the sorts of things we pursue. Friendships that extend the gift of the gospel um, to those around us. Friendship that cross any conceivable dividing line because of the power of a shared vision of presenting one another wholly before God. It's so compelling that all the other differences can fade away into the background. Friendship that costs us something, um, and causes us to suffer sometimes, but in the end, in our short time here on earth, we can look back in the small investment we made, and we can say with Paul, uh, this light and momentary affliction, it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the vision of spiritual friendship, that a light momentary difficulty is preparing us an eternal weight of glory beyond all that we can now imagine. Spiritual friendship is a gift of the gospel, and we have the privilege of bringing those riches to a place where our world and our valley is poor. That's part of our calling, and that's part of what it's going to look like for us to love one another as a church here in this place. Let's pray. Jesus, we do thank you that um, you said the most amazing thing that's ever been said, that you are our friend. Uh, if we look to you in hope and trust and faith, um, I pray that our friendship with you, that deep, intimate, spiritual connection, um, that unity of soul, knit our souls together, um, that that would feed and nourish and help grow spiritual friendships in our congregation and in this whole valley. God, I pray that um, you would provide the riches of your gospel to a place where we are poor and help relationships grow that point us towards you. We ask all of these things in your name. Amen.